Welcome to Muggle Snuggle. An in-depth review of Chapter 1 of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the first book in J.K. Rowling's hugely popular series about a young wizard named Harry Potter. The Harry Potter series has captured the imagination of readers worldwide and has become a cultural phenomenon with its themes of friendship, love, and the eternal struggle between good and evil. Chapter 1 serves as the introduction to the series, introducing us to the main character and setting the stage for the events to come. In this chapter, we are introduced to the Dursleys, Harry's aunt, uncle, and cousin, who are described as perfectly normal, thank you very much, but are later revealed to be deeply unpleasant and cruel towards Harry. We also learn that Harry has been living with the Dursleys since he was a baby, after his parents were killed by the dark wizard, Lord Voldemort. As the chapter continues, we are introduced to the concept of the wizarding world and the fact that Harry is a wizard himself. This is revealed through the arrival of Hagrid, the gamekeeper of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, who tells Harry that he has been accepted into the school and that he is a wizard, Harry. Throughout the chapter, there are references to events and characters that will become important later on in the series, such as the mention of Hogwarts, Dumbledore, and the Philosopher's Stone. These references serve to establish the larger world of the Harry Potter series and to hint at the adventures and challenges that Harry will face in the future. In terms of analysis, Chapter 1, The Boy Who Lived introduces several key themes that will be explored in depth throughout the rest of the series. The themes of family and identity are introduced through Harry's relationship with the Dursleys and his discovery of his true identity as a wizard. The concept of good versus evil is also introduced through the mention of Lord Voldemort and the foreshadowing of the conflict between Harry and the Dark Wizard. Overall, Chapter 1 of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone does an excellent job of introducing the main character and setting the stage for the rest of the series. It establishes the themes of family, identity, and the struggle between good and evil that will be explored in depth throughout the rest of the books. As a fan of the series, I found this chapter to be a great start to what would become one of my all-time favorite series. In Chapter 1, The Boy Who Lived of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, we are introduced to the Dursleys, Harry's aunt, uncle, and cousin, who are described as perfectly normal, thank you very much. However, as the chapter progresses, it becomes clear that the Dursleys are deeply unpleasant and cruel towards Harry. They make him sleep in a cupboard under the stairs, give him minimal food and clothing, and generally treat him like an inconvenience. This treatment is in contrast to the loving and nurturing environment that Harry's parents, Lily and James, provided for him before their deaths at the hands of Lord Voldemort. Through the arrival of Hagrid, the gamekeeper of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, we are introduced to the concept of the wizarding world and the revelation that Harry is a wizard. Hagrid tells Harry that he has been accepted into Hogwarts and that he is a wizard, Harry. This revelation comes as a shock to Harry, who has been unaware of his true identity and has grown up believing that he is a normal, non-magical person. Throughout the chapter, there are several references to events and characters that will become important later in the series. For example, the mention of Hogwarts and Dumbledore established the larger world of the Harry Potter series and hint at the adventures and challenges that Harry will face at the Wizarding School. The mention of the Philosopher's Stone also foreshadows the events of later books in the series, as Harry and his friends work to protect the stone from being used by those with malicious intentions. One of the major themes introduced in Chapter 1, The Boy Who Lived of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is the theme of family and identity. This theme is introduced through Harry's relationship with the Dursleys, who are presented as the polar opposite of Harry's loving and nurturing parents, Lily and James. 
The Disley's treatment of Harry highlights the importance of family and the role that it plays in shaping a person's identity. The revelation that Harry is a wizard also plays into this theme as it forces Harry to reevaluate his identity and come to terms with the fact that he is not who he thought he was. Another key theme introduced in Chapter 1 is the concept of good versus evil. This theme is introduced through the mention of Lord Voldemort, the dark wizard who killed Harry's parents and is the ultimate embodiment of evil in the Harry Potter series. The mention of Lord Voldemort foreshadows the conflict between Harry and the Dark Wizard that will be a central theme throughout the rest of the series. In terms of technique, the use of references to establish the larger world of the Harry Potter series is also noteworthy in Chapter 1. The mention of Hogwarts, Dumbledore, and the Philosopher's Stone serves to establish the larger world of the series and hint at the adventures and challenges that Harry will face in the future. These references help to create a sense of mystery and intrigue and encourage readers to continue on with the series to find out more about these characters and events. In conclusion, Chapter 1, The Boy Who Lived of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone does a fantastic job of introducing the main character and setting the stage for the rest of the series. Through the introduction of the Dursleys and the revelation of Harry's true identity as a wizard, the chapter establishes the themes of family, identity, and the struggle between good and evil that will be explored in depth throughout the rest of the books. The use of references to establish the larger world of the Harry Potter series and hint at the adventures and challenges that Harry will face in the future is also noteworthy. In terms of my personal opinion, I found this chapter to be a great start to what would become one of my all-time favorite series. The introduction of the Dursleys and their treatment of Harry immediately drew me in and made me want to know more about Harry and his journey. The revelation of Harry's true identity as a wizard was also a great moment that added an extra layer of excitement and intrigue to the story. Overall, Chapter 1 of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone left a lasting impression on me and set the stage for the many wonderful adventures to come in the rest of the series. If you enjoy our episode today, then be sure to tune in for our next episode, where we will be reviewing Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass and diving deeper into the world of Harry Potter. In that chapter, we meet Harry's new friends, Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger, and get a glimpse of life at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. This chapter follows Harry as he begins his first year at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry and meets his new friends, Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger. The title The Vanishing Glass refers to a scene in the chapter in which Harry's reflection disappears from a mirror, hinting at the mysteries and magic that Harry will encounter at Hogwarts. This chapter also explores Harry's relationships with Ron and Hermione and their role in his journey as a wizard. We also see Harry begin to learn about his true identity as a wizard and the events that led to his parents' deaths at the hands of Lord Voldemort. With its exciting action and deep character development, Chapter 2 is sure to be a treat for fans of the series. So if you're a fan of Harry Potter and want to dive deeper into the world of magic and adventure, be sure to tune in for our next episode, where we will be reviewing Chapter 2 of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. We'll see you then here in Muggle Snuggle. Wow! I can't believe you're still here.
By the way, if you are still here, you are lucky because I am going to retell the story of Harry Potter from cover to cover in a fun, old English style. Without any further ado, let's do it. Chapter 1 The Boy Who Lived Mr. and Mrs. Dizley of Number 4 Privet Drive were pleased to inform others that they were quite normal, thank you very much. It was unlikely that one would expect them to be involved in anything strange or mysterious, as they did not condone such nonsense. Mr. Disley was the director of a firm known as Grunnings, which produced drills. He was a large, muscular man with little neck to speak of, though he did have a rather impressive mustache. Mrs. Disley, on the other hand, was thin and blonde, with nearly twice the normal amount of neck, which proved quite useful as she often craned over garden fences to spy on the neighbors. The Dizleys had a young son named Dudley, and in their opinion, there was no finer boy anywhere. The Dizleys had everything they wanted, but they also kept a secret, and their greatest fear was that someone would discover it. They didn't think they could bear it if anyone found out about the Potters. Mrs. Potter was Mrs. Dizley's sister, but they hadn't seen each other in many years. In fact, Mrs. Dizley pretended she didn't have a sister, as her sister and her useless husband were as undisley-like as could be. The Dizleys shuddered at the thought of what the neighbors would say if the Potters were to arrive on the street. The Dizleys knew that the Potters had a young son too, but they had never even seen him. This boy was another excellent reason to keep the Potters at a distance, they didn't want Dudley mixing with a child of that kind. On a dreary and overcast Tuesday, Mr. and Mrs. Dizley arose with nary a hint in the sky above that strange and mysterious events would soon be transpiring throughout the realm. As he donned his most mundane neckwear for the day's labors, Mr. Disley hung merrily, while Mrs. Disley chattered gaily as she struggled to seat a wailing Dudley in his high chair. None among them took notice of a large, tawny owl flapping past the window. At half past eight, Mr. Disley retrieved his attaché, pecked Mrs. Disley on the cheek, and attempted to bid Dudley farewell, but missed as the boy was then throwing a tantrum and flinging his morning gruel about the room. Tis, but a little tyke, Mr. Disley chuckled as he took his leave. As he backed out of the drive at number four Privet Drive, it was upon reaching the street corner that he first perceived a sign of something amiss a cat perusing a map. For a moment, Mr. Disley couldn't comprehend what he had seen then he quickly turned his head to look again. There was a tabby cat standing on the corner of Privet Drive, but there was no map in sight. What could he have been thinking? It must have been a trick of the light. Mr. Disley blinked and gazed at the cat, which stared back at him. As Mr. Disley drove around the corner and up the road, he observed the cat in his mirror. It was now examining the sign that said Privet Drive No, looking at the sign, cats couldn't read maps or signs. Mr. Disley gave himself a little shake and dismissed the cat from his mind. As he drove towards town, he thought of nothing except a large order of drills that he hoped to acquire that day. But on the outskirts of town, the thought of drills was driven from his mind by something else. As he sat in the usual morning traffic jam, he couldn't help but notice that there seemed to be a disproportionately large number of oddly dressed individuals around. People clad in cloaks. Mr. Disley couldn't abide those who dressed in peculiar garments the sorts of outfits one saw on young people. He supposed this must be some absurd new fashion. He tapped his fingers on the steering wheel and his eyes fell upon a group of these oddities standing quite close by. They were whispering excitedly to one another. Mr. Disley was outraged to see that a couple of them were not young at all. Why, that man had to be older than he was and wearing an emerald green cloak. The audacity of it.
But then it occurred to Mr. Disley that this was likely some silly stunt these people were obviously collecting for some cause. Yes, that must be it. The traffic moved on and a few minutes later, Mr. Disley arrived in the Grunnings parking lot, his mind returning to drills. Mr. Disley always sat with his back to the window in his office on the ninth floor. Had he not done so, he might have found it more difficult to concentrate on drills that morning. He didn't see the owl swooping past in broad daylight, though people down in the street did, they pointed and gaped open mouth as owl after owl sped overhead. Most of them had never seen an owl, even at night. Mr. Disley, however, had a perfectly ordinary, owl-free morning. He berated five different people. He made several significant telephone calls and shouted a bit more. He was in a very good mood until lunchtime, when he thought he would stretch his legs and walk across the road to purchase a bun from the bakery. He had completely forgotten about the people in cloaks until he encountered a group of them near the bakers. He glared at them angrily as he passed. He didn't know why, but they made him uneasy. This particular group was also whispering excitedly, and he couldn't spot a single collecting tin. It was on his way back past them, gripping a large donut in a bag, that he caught a few snippets of their excited whispers. The Potters, that's right, that's what I heard, yes, their son, Harry. Mr. Disley came to a halt. Fear overwhelmed him. He looked back at the whispers as if he wished to address them, but thought better of it. Mr. Disley hastened back across the road, hastened up to his office, snapped at his secretary not to disturb him, seized his telephone, and had almost completed dialing his home number when he changed his mind. He placed the receiver back down and stroked his mustache, thinking, no, he was being foolish. Potter was not such an uncommon name. He was certain there were many people called Potter who had a son named Harry. Upon further reflection, he was not even certain that his nephew was called Harry. He had never even laid eyes on the boy. It could have been Harvey. Or Harold. There was no point in upsetting Mrs. Disley. She always became so distressed at any mention of her sister. He did not blame her if he had a sister like that, but all the same, those people in cloaks. He found it much more difficult to concentrate on drills that afternoon, and when he left the building at 5 o'clock, he was still so troubled that he collided with someone just outside the door. Pray, forgive me, he grunted, as the tiny old man stumbled and almost fell. It was a few seconds before Mr. Disley realized that the man was wearing a violet cloak. He did not seem at all upset at being almost knocked to the ground. On the contrary, his face split into a wide smile and he said in a squeaky voice that made passersby stare, Do not be sorry, my dear sir, for nothing could upset me today. Rejoice, for he who must not be named has gone at last. Even mothers like yourself should be celebrating this happy, happy day. And the old man embraced Mr. Disley about the middle and walked off. Mr. Disley stood rooted to the spot. He had been embraced by a complete stranger. He also thought he had been called a muggle, whatever that was. He was rattled. He hastened to his car and set off for home, hoping he was imagining things which he had never hoped before because he did not approve of imagination. As he did drive onto the driveway of the fourth house, the first thing that he did see, and it did not improve his mood, was the tabby cat that he had spied that morn. It now sat upon his garden wall. He was sure it was the same one, it had the same markings about its eyes. Be gone, said Mr. Disley loudly. The cat did not move. It did, but give him a stern look.
Was this normal feline behavior? Mr. Disley did wonder. Trying to compose himself, he did let himself into the house. He was still determined not to speak of anything to his wife. Mrs. Disley had had a pleasant, normal day. She did tell him over dinner all about Mrs. Next Door's troubles with her daughter and how Dudley had learned a new word, I will not. Mr. Disley did try to act normally. When Dudley had been put to bed, he did go into the living room in time to catch the final report on the evening news. And finally, ornithologists everywhere have reported that the nation's owls have behaved very unusually on this day. Although owls normally hunt at night and are rarely seen during the day, there have been hundreds of sightings of these birds flying in every direction since the dawn. Experts are unable to explain why the owls have suddenly altered their nocturnal habits. The newscaster allowed himself a smile. Very mysterious indeed. And now, over to Jim McGuffin with the weather. Will there be any more showers of owls tonight, Jim? Well, Ted, said the weatherman, I cannot say for certain about that, but it is not only the owls that have acted oddly today. Viewers from as far as Kent, Yorkshire, and Dundee have contacted me to inform me that instead of the rain I had predicted yesterday, they have experienced a deluge of shooting stars. Perhaps some have been celebrating bonfire night early, it is not until next week, people. But I can promise a wet night tonight. Mr. Disley sat frozen in his armchair. Shooting stars throughout Britain? Owls flying in the daylight? Mysterious individuals in cloaks all about? And a whisper, a whisper concerning the potters. Mrs. Disley entered the living room carrying two cups of tea. It was of no use. He would have to speak to her. He cleared his throat nervously. Air Petunia, dear hast thou heard from thy sister lately? As he had expected, Mrs. Disley looked shocked and angry. After all, they normally pretended she had no sister. Nay, she said sharply. Why? Odd things on the news, Mr. Disley mumbled. Owls, shooting stars, and there were many strange-looking individuals in town today. And, snapped Mrs. Disley. Well, I just thought, perhaps, it was something to do with, thou knowest, her group. Mrs. Disley sipped her tea through pursed lips. Mr. Disley wondered if he dared tell her he had heard the name Potter. He decided he did not dare. Instead, he said as casually as he could, their son he would be about Dudley's age now, would he not? I suppose so, said Mrs. Disley stiffly. What is his name again? Howard, is it not? Harry. A nasty, common name, if thou doth ask me. Oh, yes, said Mr. Disley, his heart sinking horribly. Yes, I quite agree. He did not speak another word on the subject as they ascended the stairs to bed. While Mrs. Disley was in the bathroom, Mr. Disley crept to the bedroom window and peered down into the front garden. The cat was still there. It stared down Privet Drive as if it were waiting for something. Was he imagining things? Could all this have anything to do with the Potters? If it did, if it became known that they were related to a pair of well, he did not think he could bear it. The Disleys did get into bed. Mrs. Disley fell asleep quickly, but Mr. Disley lay awake, pondering it all. His final, comforting thought before he fell asleep was that even if the Potters were involved, there was no reason for them to come near him and Mrs. Disley. The Potters knew very well what he and Petunia thought of them and their kind. 
He could not see how he and Petunia could become involved in anything that might be occurring he yawned and turned over it could not affect them. How very wrong he was. Mr. Disley may have been drifting into an uneasy slumber, but the feline upon the wall outside showed no signs of drowsiness. It sat as still as a statue, its eyes fixed unblinkingly upon the far corner of Privet Drive. It did not so much as quiver when a car door slammed on the next street, nor when two owls swooped overhead. In truth, it was nearly midnight before the cab moved at all. A man appeared on the corner the cat had been watching, appearing so suddenly and silently one would have thought he had just sprung forth from the earth. The cat's tail twitched and its eyes narrowed. Nothing like this man had ever been seen on Privet Drive. He was tall, thin, and very old, judging by the silver of his hair and beard, which were both long enough to tuck into his belt. He wore long robes, a purple cloak that swept the ground, and high-heeled, buckled boots. His blue eyes were light, bright and sparkling behind half-moon spectacles and his nose was very long and crooked as though it had been broken at least twice. This man's name was Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore did not seem to realize that he had just arrived in a street where everything from his name to his boots was unwelcome. He was busy rummaging in his cloak, searching for something. But he did seem to realize he was being watched, for he looked up suddenly at the cat, which was still staring at him from the other end of the street. For some reason, the sight of the cat seemed to amuse him. He chuckled and muttered, I should have known. He found what he was searching for in his inside pocket. It seemed to be a silver cigarette lighter. He flicked it open, held it up in the air, and clicked it. The nearest street lamp went out with a little pop. He clicked it again, the next lamp flickered into darkness. Twelve times he clicked the put-outer, until the only lights left on the whole street were two tiny pinpricks in the distance, which were the eyes of the cat watching him. If anyone looked out of their window now, even beady-eyed, they would not see anything. The only light in the street came from the moon, which was shining very brightly overhead. Mrs. Disley, they would not be able to see anything that was occurring upon the pavement. Dumbledore slipped the put-outer back within his cloak and set off down the street towards number four, where he sat down on the wall next to the cat. He did not look at it, but after a moment he spoke to it. Fancy meeting me here, Professor McGonagall. He turned to smile at the tabby, but it had gone. Instead, he was smiling at a rather severe-looking woman who wore squirt glasses exactly the shape of the markings the cat had around its eyes. She, too, wore a cloak, an emerald one. Her black hair was drawn into a tight bun. She looked distinctly ruffled. How didst thou know it was me? She asked. My dear professor, I have never seen a cat sit so stiffly. Thou wouldst be stiff if thou hadst been sitting upon a brick wall all day, said Professor McGonagall. All day? When thou couldst have been celebrating? I must have passed a dozen feasts and parties on my way here. Professor McGonagall sniffed angrily. Oh, yes, everyone is celebrating, to be sure, she said impatiently. One would think they would be a bit more careful, but no even the muggles have noticed something is occurring. It was on their news. She jerked her head back at the Disley's dark living room window. I heard it. Flocks of owls, shooting stars. Well, they are not completely foolish. They were bound to notice something. Shooting stars down in Kent I'll wager that was Daedalus Diggle. He never had much sense. Thou cannot blame them, said Dumbledore gently. 
We have had precious little to celebrate for 11 years. I know that, said Professor McGonagall irritably. But that is no reason to lose our heads. People are being downright careless, out on the streets in broad daylight, not even dressed in muddle garb, swapping rumors. She threw a sharp, sideways glance at Dumbledore here, as though hoping he would tell her something, but he did not, so she continued. A fine thing it would be if, on the very day thou knowest who seems to have vanished at last, the muddles discovered us all. I suppose he truly has gone, Dumbledore? It certainly seems so, said Dumbledore. We have much to be thankful for. Wouldst thou care for a lemon drop? A what? A lemon drop. They are a kind of muddle sweet I am rather fond of. No, thank you, said Professor McGonagall coldly, as though she did not think this was the moment for lemon drops. As I say, even if thou knowest who has gone dash. My dear Professor, surely a sensible person such as thyself can call him by his name? All this thou knowest who nonsense for eleven years I have been trying to persuade people to call him by his proper name, Voldemort. Professor McGonagall flinched, but Dumbledore, who was unsticking two lemon drops, seemed not to notice. It all becomes so confusing if we keep saying thou knowest who. I have never seen any reason to be frightened of saying Voldemort's name. I know thou hast not, said Professor McGonagall, sounding half exasperated, half admiring. But thou art different. Everyone knows thou art the only one thou knowest, oh, very well, Voldemort, was frightened of. Thou flatterest me, said Dumbledore calmly. Voldemort had powers I will never possess. Only because thou art too well noble to use them. It is fortunate that it is dark. I have not blushed so much since Madame Pomfrey told me she liked my new earmuffs. Professor McGonagall shot a sharp look at Dumbledore and said, The owls are not compared to the rumors that are flying about. Dost thou know what everyone is saying? About why he has disappeared? About what finally stopped him? It seemed that Professor McGonagall had reached the point she was most anxious to discuss, the true reason she had been waiting on a cold, hard wall all day, for neither as a cat nor as a woman had she fixed Dumbledore with such a piercing gaze as she did now. It was plain that whatever everyone was saying, she was not going to believe it until Dumbledore told her it was true. Dumbledore, however, was choosing another lemon drop and did not answer. What they are saying, she pressed on, is that last night Voldemort came to Godric's Hollow. He went to find the Potters. The rumor is that Lily and James Potter are that they are dead. Dumbledore bowed his head. Professor McGonagall gasped. Lily and James. I cannot believe it. I did not want to believe it. Oh, Albus. Dumbledore reached out and patted her on the shoulder. I know. I know. He said heavily. Professor McGonagall's voice trembled as she continued. That is not all. They are saying he tried to kill the Potter's son, Harry. But he could not. He could not kill that little boy. No one knows why or how, but they are saying that when he could not kill Harry Potter, Voldemort's power somehow broke and that is why he is gone. Dumbledore nodded gravely. It is it is true, faltered Professor McGonagall. After all he has done, all the people he has killed, he could not kill a little boy. It is just astounding, of all the things to stop him, but how in the name of heaven did Harry survive? We can only guess, said Dumbledore. We may never know. 
Professor McGonagall pulled out a lace handkerchief and dabbed at her eyes beneath her spectacles. Dumbledore gave a great sniff as he took a golden watch from his pocket and examined it. It was a very odd watch. It had twelve hands, but no numbers. Instead, little planets were moving around the edge. It must have made sense to Dumbledore, though, because he put it back in his pocket and said, Hagrid is late. I suppose it was he who told me I would be here, by the way? Yes, said Professor McGonagall. And I do not suppose thou wilt tell me why thou art here, of all places? I have come to bring Harry to his aunt and uncle. They are the only family he hath left now. Thou do not mean thou cannot mean the people who live here, cried Professor McGonagall, jumping to her feet and pointing at number four. Dumbledore thou cannot. I have been watching them all day. Thou could not find two people who are less like us. And they have this son, I saw him kicking his mother all the way up the street, screaming for sweets. Harry Potter come and live here. Tis the wisest place for him, spoke Dumbledore with conviction. His aunt and uncle shall be able to make all clear to him when he is of age. I have penned them a missive. A missive, repeated Professor McGonagall in disbelief, lowering herself back onto the wall. Truly, Dumbledore, do you believe a letter can suffice to explain all this? These folk shall never comprehend him. He shall be renowned, a legend. I should not be astonished if this day is remembered as Harry Potter Day in the future. There shall be volumes written about Harry. Every child in our world shall know his appellation. Precisely, said Dumbledore, gazing very seriously over the rim of his half-moon spectacles. It would be sufficient to inflame the ego of any lad. Renowned ere he can walk and speak. Renowned for something he shall not even recall. Can you not see how much better he shall fare, growing away from all that until he is ready to bear it? Professor McGonagall opened her mouth, changed her mind, swallowed, and then said, I, I, you are correct, of course. But how is the lad to arrive here, Dumbledore? She scrutinized his cloak suddenly as though she suspected he might be concealing Harry beneath it. Hagrid brings him, said Dumbledore. Do you deem it wise to entrust Hagrid with something as crucial as this? I would entrust Hagrid with my life, said Dumbledore. I do not mean to imply that his heart is not in the right place, said Professor McGonagall grudgingly, but you cannot pretend he is not careless. He does have a tendency to, what was that? A low rumbling noise had interrupted the silence around them. It grew steadily louder as they searched the street for some sign of a headlight. It swelled to a roar as they both looked up at the sky, and a massive motorcycle fell out of the air and landed on the road in front of them. If the motorcycle was immense, it was nothing compared to the man seated upon it. He was nearly twice as tall as a normal man and at least five times as broad. He appeared simply too large to be permitted, and so wild, long tangles of bushy black hair and beard obscured most of his visage, he had hands the size of trash bin lids, and his feet in their leather boots were like newborn dolphins. In his formidable, muscular arms he held a bundle of blankets. Hagrid, said Dumbledore, sounding relieved. At last. And from whence did you acquire this motorcycle? Borrowed it, Professor Dumbledore, sir, said the giant, dismounting the motorcycle with care as he spoke. Young Sirius Black lent it to me. I have him, sir. Were there any difficulties? No, sir, the house was almost destroyed, but I retrieved him safely before the muggles began to swarm about. 
He fell asleep as we were flying over Bristol. Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall leaned forward over the bundle of blankets. Within, just visible, was a baby boy, fast asleep. Under a tuft of jet black hair on his forehead, they could see a curiously shaped cut, resembling a bolt of lightning. Is that where Dash? whispered Professor McGonagall. I said Dumbledore. He shall bear that scar forever. Could you not do something about it, Dumbledore? Even if I could, I would not. Scars can be useful. I have one myself above my left knee that is a precise map of the London Underground. Well, give him here, Hagrid. We had best get this done. Could I, could I bid him farewell, sir? asked Hagrid. He bent his great, shaggy head over Harry and gave him what must have been a very scratchy, whiskery kiss. Then, suddenly, Hagrid let out a howl like a wounded dog. Shoo, hissed Professor McGonagall, you will awaken the muggles. Sorry, sobbed Hagrid, taking out a large, spotted handkerchief and burying his face in it. But I see he cannot bear it, Lily and James dead, and poor little Harry off to live with muggles. Aye, aye, it is all very sad, but compose yourself, Hagrid, or we shall be discovered, Professor McGonagall whispered, patting Hagrid gingerly on the arm as Dumbledore stepped over the low garden wall and walked to the front door. He placed Harry gently on the doorstep, removed the letter from his cloak, placed it inside Harry's blankets, and then returned to the other two. For a full minute the three of them stood and gazed at the little bundle, Hagrid's shoulders shook, Professor McGonagall blinked furiously, and the twinkling light that usually shone from Dumbledore's eyes seemed to have extinguished. Well, said Dumbledore finally, that is that. We have no business remaining here. We may as well go and join the festivities. I, said Hagrid in a very muffled voice, I shall return Sirius's bike. Good night, Professor McGonagall, Professor Dumbledore, sir. Wiping his streaming eyes on his jacket sleeve, Hagrid mounted the motorcycle and kicked the engine to life. With a roar it ascended into the air and disappeared into the night. I expect to see you soon, Professor McGonagall, said Dumbledore, nodding to her. Professor McGonagall blew her nose in reply. Dumbledore turned and walked back down the street. At the corner he halted and took out the silver put outer. He clicked it once, and twelve balls of light sped back to their street lamps so that Privet Drive shone suddenly orange and he could discern a tabby cat slinking around the corner at the other end of the street. He could just make out the bundle of blankets on the step of number four. Good fortune, Harry, he murmured. He spun on his heel and, with a swish of his cloak, he vanished. A breeze ruffled the knee hedges of Privet Drive, which lay silent and orderly under the inky sky, the very last place one would expect remarkable things to occur. Harry Potter rolled over within his blankets without waking. One small hand closed on the letter beside him and he slept on, unaware that he was special, unaware that he was famous, unaware that he would be awakened in a few hours by Mrs. Dizzley's scream as she opened the front door to put out the milk bottles, nor that he would spend the next few weeks being prodded and pinched by his cousin Dudley. He could not know that at this very moment, people meeting in secret all over the country were lifting their glasses and saying in hushed tones to Harry Potter, the boy who lived. Thank you for listening up until the end. 
please remember to share this podcast to your mobile friends and please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. This podcast is a Hustle Studios Productions and may contain ads to help us in producing more quality content. If you would like to support us financially, please do so by visiting the link on the show notes. Again, happy listening. Until next episode.